2: Listener discretion is advised. It's July 27, 2021. The House Select Committee to Investigate January 6th is about to hold its first hearing. It's been only a few days since the committee's final member, Republican Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, joined, but it's been more than seven months since members of Congress and the public began pushing for congressional investigation of the attack and its lead-up. As its first witnesses, the committee has invited four law enforcement officers who defended the Capitol on January 6th to tell their stories. Chairman Benny Thompson explains why in his opening remarks.
3: If not for the heroism of the United States Capitol Police and the Metropolitan Police Department, many more lives might have been lost and the rioters could have accomplished what they set out to do up in American democracy. I can't overstate what was on the line, our democracy. You held the line. We're going to revisit some of those moments today.
2: The officers' testimonies are gut-wrenching. The committee also plays a video compilation of footage from the insurrection, which lays bare the chaos and horrifying violence of January
0: 6th. USA USA, U.S.A.! U.S.A.! It does look like we're going to have an ad hoc march stepping off here. There's a crowd surge heading east.
3: We love Trump! We love Trump! We love Trump! We love Trump!
4: We love Trump! We, love Trump. we have a breach of the capitol! The, to the, upper
1: road. Road.
2: the hearing lasts for nearly three and a half hours. And Thompson ends with a promise to the officers. Now
3: we on this committee have a duty to get to the bottom of what happened that day. We cannot allow what happened on January 6th to ever happen again. We owe it to the American people. We owe it to you and your colleagues. And we will not fail, I assure you, in that responsibility.
2: And then, having made that commitment, the committee went dark. It would be almost a year until it brought in new witnesses to testify before the public. We know now that the committee would have 10 more hearings and business meetings, and ultimately produce an 845-page report, along with thousands of pages of interview transcripts. But for long months after the first hearing, the committee's members were largely quiet. The committee didn't issue interim findings. It conducted its depositions in private. And what the public did end up hearing was pretty obscure civil suits contesting executive privilege, acronyms like NARA, and consistent suggestions that people were not cooperating. Those months of behind-the-scenes legal and political wrangling, however, proved critical to the committee's ultimately successful public presentation. All the while, amidst the litigation and the partisan posturing, the committee was quietly but frenetically gathering evidence building an expansive, unprecedented case against the former president, proving that he did, in fact, attempt to shatter the foundations of American democracy.
5: Announcing the subpoenas of five witnesses, the committee says, helped organize the rally that preceded the attack on the Capitol. We cannot leave the violence of
2: January 6th and its causes uninvestigated.
0: The indifference shown to my
6: colleagues is disgraceful. You don't answer our questions. You create rigmarole log jams.
2: Former President Trump is trying to stop the White House from turning documents
1: over to the House Committee investigating.
2: This is the aftermath. Episode 6: Going Dark. This episode covers almost a full year, a period in which the committee was quietly fighting and investigating, but doing very little in public, a period in which a lot of people declared that the committee was a failure. Here's Lawfare Associate Editor Rohini Kurup with an update on the four criminal cases we've been tracking since our first episode. You'll recall that each defendant is alleged to have engaged in conduct of varying degrees of severity, So each one was charged with different crimes. We'll go from least to most serious.
5: When we last checked in on our first defendant, Eric Munchell, the zip tie guy, he and his mother were charged with five additional felony counts, bringing Munchell's grand total of charges up to seven. He pleaded not guilty on all counts. During the period in between the committee's hearing featuring law enforcement testimony on July 27, 2021, to their first public hearing on June 9th 2022, not much happens in Munchel's case. He is still under home confinement awaiting trial in the custody of his friend. In August 2021, Munchel files a motion to transfer his third-party custody to his older brother, which the government does not oppose. In September, a U.S. district judge grants the motion.
2: So our defendant accused of the least serious conduct is not in jail, but more than a year after January 6th, he still hasn't been tried.
5: Our second Capitol riot defendant is Richard Barnett, the man who was photographed with his feet up on a desk in Nancy Pelosi's office during the riot. Last time we saw Barnett, a judge denied his motion to lessen restrictions on his condition of released home confinement. During this time period, the discovery process, which involves sifting through a massive trove of materials, is still ongoing. In February, 2022, a US district judge sets Barnett's trial date for September 6th, 2022.
2: His case is proceeding relatively quickly given the amount of discovery required, though he still won't be brought before a jury until one year and nine months after January 6th.
5: Unlike Munchell and Barnett, our third defendant, Edward Jacob Lang, remains in jail awaiting trial. Lang, remember, is the guy who allegedly attacked police outside the Capitol for several hours on January 6th. In August, 2021, Lang files a motion for bond and release from police custody, which the government opposes. While that litigation is ongoing, the government issues a superseding indictment, adding four additional assault charges and identifying Lang's victims by initials in the new and existing charges. Lang pleads not guilty to all of the counts listed in the new indictment. About a week after the government issues the superseding indictment, a judge denies Lang's motion for pretrial release on bond. Days later, he appeals the decision in the D.C. Circuit. In March, a three-judge panel from the D.C. Circuit upholds the lower court's ruling, and later in April, Lang files a motion to dismiss his indictment on count nine, obstruction of an official proceeding under an obstruction statute. In the motion, Lang argues that he did not disrupt any proceeding on January 6th because his presence near the Capitol did not specifically destroy documents used in the vote counting proceedings, and therefore the obstruction statute does not apply.
2: This legal argument would later prove to be a serious complication for the Justice Department in cases against multiple January 6 defendants.
5: In response, the government argues that nothing in the statute limits its application to only the destruction of documents. After continued litigation on the issue, a judge grants Lang's motion to dismiss count nine, bringing the number of Lang's charges down to 12.
2: Lang's case shows that more serious criminal charges can result in more significant legal challenges by the defendant, further delaying the proceedings. Next up is Meggs, who is also facing some serious charges.
5: The last time we checked in on our last defendant, Kelly Meggs, the government had just issued a fourth superseding indictment, and Meggs pleaded not guilty to all charges against him. Megs, you'll remember, is an alleged member of the far-right group known as the Oath Keepers, who prosecutors claim had been involved in planning the January 6th attack for months. While not much of the committee's work happens publicly during this period, the opposite is true for the efforts to prosecute Megs. On January 13th, the Justice Department unseals an indictment of Megs and many of his fellow Oath Keepers for the most serious criminal charge yet used against any of the Capitol rioters, seditious conspiracy. The Justice Department also issues three additional charges against Megs. A few days later, Megs pleads not guilty to all of the charges against him. Later on, Megs and his co-defendants file a motion to dismiss five charges against them, including the seditious conspiracy charge. Megs and his co-defendants also file a motion to transfer venue from the D.C. District Court to the Alexandria Division of the Eastern District of Virginia, claiming that the jurors in D.C. are more likely to be liberal and therefore be biased against them. While Meggs and his co-defendants await the judge's decision on the motions, the judge sets the trial date to September 26, 2022. For the rest of this period, Meggs remains in police custody awaiting trial.
2: Back in Congress, at the newly formed Select Committee to investigate January 6th, things are a bit chaotic and uncertain. Yeah,
4: my name is Kyle Cheney. I'm senior legal affairs reporter for Politico.
2: Kyle Cheney. Who is no relation to Dick or Liz Cheney, covers Congress and has been closely following the select committee from the beginning. He describes the committee's earliest days as filled with doubt.
4: So it was just kind of a feeling that, you know, I guess a cynicism or a skepticism about could, it, could this committee actually get anything done? How quickly is it going to flame out? You know, is it really kind of a waste of time and time and energy?
2: Even before the committee has introduced itself to the public at that first hearing with law enforcement officers, the one Chairman Thompson introduced at the beginning of this episode, many Republicans are protesting that it is hopelessly biased, that it was designed to target political rivals rather than to investigate the events of January 6th. The committee is finally able to speak for itself at that first hearing. Here's Chairman Thompson.
3: There's no place for politics or partisanship in this investigation. Our only charge is to follow the facts where they lead us.
2: But assurances of nonpartisanship and promises to follow the facts can only get the committee so far. Because another thing has happened while Democrats and Republicans were fighting over who would investigate January 6th and how. A growing chorus of voices began arguing that the country should just move on
6: Look, Pamela, we're just so ready to move on. I made a decision based upon the facts that I knew at that point in time, but it's time to move on. It's time for this country to heal. It's time for a spirit of forgiveness to be
0: happening. So we really have to move on and go back to work for
1: our constituents. That's my deal.
2: So the committee has an additional task in that first hearing. It must convince the American people that its work is necessary. That what other congressional committees have done already isn't enough. That the Justice Department's work to prosecute the rioters, then standing at about 590 individuals charged, isn't sufficient. That telling the story of the insurrection cannot be left solely to historians or the press.
4: wanted to tell people, they wanted people to under, remember the gravity of January 6, and I think throughout their life, they want to remind people what they felt like on January
2: 6th. So in the run-up to the first hearing, they call in producers to compile that documentary-style video of the attack you heard a snippet of at the top. It features highly disturbing footage of rioters smashing windows, violently attacking officers, and desecrating the halls of Congress.
3: It's frightening to think about how close we were. A few inches of wood and glass, an officer turning left instead of turning right. But just describing that attack doesn't come close to capturing what actually took place that day. So we're going to see some of what our witnesses saw on January 6th.
2: And they invite witnesses who confronted the mob on that day. First up, Sergeant Ocalino Gannell, a 15-year veteran of the U.S. Capitol Police, who was attacked by rioters on the lower west terrace of the Capitol building.
3: I arrived at home at nearly 4 a.m on January 7. I had to push my wife away from me because she wanted to hug me, and I told her no because of the other chemical that I, my uniform had on. I couldn't sleep because the chemical reactivated after I took a shower, and my skin, skin was burning. I finally fell asleep two hours later, completely, physically. And mentally exhausted. Yet by 8 o'clock a.m., I was already back, on my way back to the Capitol.
2: Next is D.C. Metropolitan Police Officer Michael Fanone, who was pulled into the crowd, tased, and suffered a heart attack.
0: I was grabbed, beaten, tased, all while being called a traitor to my country. I was at risk of being stripped of and killed with my own firearm. As I heard chance of killing with his own gun.
2: Daniel Hodges, another DC Metropolitan Police Officer, speaks next.
3: The man
6: in front of me grabbed my baton that I still held in my hands, and in my current state, I was unable to retain my weapon. He bashed me in the head and face with it, rupturing my lip and adding additional injury to my skull. At this point, I knew I couldn't sustain much more damage and remain upright. At best, I would collapse and be a liability to my colleagues. At worst, be dragged out into the crowd and lynched. Unable to move or otherwise signal the officers behind me that I needed to fall back, I did the only thing that I could do and
2: screamed for help. Finally, the committee hears from US Capitol Police Officer Harry Dunn, who recounted how the crowd reacted when he told rioters, convinced that nobody had voted for Biden, that he had done so.
3: That prompted a torrent of racial epithets. One woman in a pink MAGA shirt yelled, you hear that guys? This nigger voted for Joe Biden. Then the crowd, perhaps around 20 people, joined in screaming, boo, fucking nigger. No one had ever ever called me a nigger while wearing the uniform of a Capitol Police officer.
4: Um, they wanted to have people essentially relive the trauma and the horror of it to understand the stakes. And so that's why they led with these really visceral and, and emotional and, and really hard to hear accounts of what happened inside the Capitol, the hand-to-hand combat, the violence, the, the you know racism among some su- subsets of the, the riot crowd. You know, really put people back in the way when everybody felt there was sort of this existential threat to the country.
2: It seems to work. Here's political commentator John Heilman speaking on MSNBC.
0: I, I've been doing this for thirty some odd years and I've never I've never seen a congressional congressional testimony that's had more emotional impact than this.
2: And here's Representative Kat Kamek appearing on C SPAN's Washington Journal. I have to say it was, of course, exceptionally emotional, very
4: jarring, and my heart breaks for the officers and the experience
2: that they went through the 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 whole the whole day. The committee's first hearing is a resounding success. But the success also raises expectations. What comes next? Here's Adam Kinzinker.
6: So bringing those officers in. Uh, gave it a human face, and you know the concern I had when that was done, frankly, was, oh no, we're going to have to top this. You know, we're going to have to go and do better and 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 do even more kind of emotional or bring more of a personal touch to it. And that was was a great first hearing, but I also I, I, I feared we set ourselves up for failure in the long run.
2: Here's Kyle Cheney,
4: and so I think. It made it harder. The the hearing helped undercut some of the claims about the politics of it as well and and blunted some of that criticism that they faced going into it. I think they felt after that first hearing that the public still had a hunger for the, you know, for getting answers, that they still had uh, an interest in, in knowing the fuller story.
2: And that was a story they hadn't investigated yet.
4: The members of the committee, I think, felt very uh, vindicated, I guess, and felt very emboldened by the response they got to that first hearing, which didn't necessarily uncover anything new, but it, again, reframed the whole story and reminded people of the horror that day that represented and really underscored why they felt like a full, thorough investigation was necessary.
3: It was riveting testimony, uh, as you can possibly uh, imagine. Uh, We are thankful for that testimony. Uh, It sets the right tone uh, for the work of this committee. Uh, But it also says that there's significant work uh, that we have to do
4: over the next few months. I think there was a sense that, oh, wow, they, they actually were effective. They put an effective display on that kind of crystallized this for people. I think they felt the hearing they put together did that job uh, and essentially bought them time.
2: So now what? The committee has loudly proclaimed the cruciality of its work. It has articulated its mission. It has made promises to the law enforcement officers who protected them, and to the American people. All that's left is the unglamorous work of actually finding the answers.
4: It takes a long time to set up a complicated investigative effort like this. And, you know, we now know how serious they we were about being a fulsome investigation. Uh, and so it takes a lot of time and work to build that kind of apparatus. And, and so they basically tried to get the most talented staff they could and there were a lot of eager people who, who wanted to help them because they believed in the mission uh, and spent all of August building that out and creating what we now know to be the five teams that investigated different components of what led to
2: January 6th. Here's Adam Kinzinger.
4: See, I, I had no idea how massive
6: of an undertaking this would be. I mean, I, I, I knew it was going to be something. But that initial period, so we do the hearing, kind of get everybody's attention. And now it's like, okay, so what? And really you're gonna have to start, you have to end up in a sprint you know, from a standstill. And that, that's what it felt like. You have to interview, you have to hire people, you have to spin people up, you have to organize how this is gonna go.
2: It's not just a question of personnel and resources though. Standing up an investigation requires framing the specific questions that demand answers. Identifying the relevant sources of information. Gathering and sorting and reviewing that information. Selecting witnesses. Deciding on investigative methodologies. Prioritizing and strategizing. And knowing that it's all subject to change as investigators learn more.
4: I think the, the, the committee's mandate is sort of spelled out in their organizing resolution, which you know in very broad terms talks about the need to understand the causes and and motivations and behind the attack on the Capitol and how to prevent it from ever happening again. And that's a very intentionally broad mandate.
2: Two things were clear from the beginning. The investigation was going to be complex and time pressured, and it would face stiff resistance, including from key witnesses.
4: You know, the, the committee, I think, prepared on two fronts to conduct its investigation. I think one of them got a lot more attention, which is the actual substantive investigation done by former prosecutors who they hired as their staff members to subpoena people, bring them in, depose them, interview them, and gather evidence.
6: But that feeling, even for the first few months for us, was frustration. It's like, why aren't we getting out subpoenas? Why aren't we going after call records? They're going to delete call records, this kind of stuff. And it did take a few months for us to get comfortable with okay, we're on a good path here. But that initial moment after that first hearing, man, I, you know, I had concerns the first hearing was gonna set us up to fail. I was then being concerned that we couldn't get running fast enough here for the limited time we had. We knew that we had an expiration date on this committee.
2: An expiration date because the select committee would only last as long as the current Congress, which would turn over in January, 2023. Ultimately, The staff includes seasoned former prosecutors and investigators, including a former U.S. attorney and a former CIA inspector general. It's a sophisticated team that has a lot of experience with the mechanics of complicated investigations. But to actually do their jobs, to overcome the many efforts to thwart their work that are sure to come, this team needs an additional kind of support. Lawyers that will fight to establish the committee's authority to force people to comply with their investigative demands. The
4: second facet, the second prong is their legal team. They relied on the House counsel's office and Doug Letter, the House counsel, uh, and he built out a team including many House lawyers but also brought in some outsiders to mount a full-scale you know, legal defense of their work and actually a, both an, a defensive one to, pr- to protect themselves but also an affirmative one you know, to, to go after uh, difficult to obtain documents and be prepared to hold, men, hold people in contempt if they didn't cooperate quickly.
2: What exactly is the House counsel? Here's Douglas Letter, who served as general counsel to the House under Nancy Pelosi, to explain.
0: The counsel is appointed by the speaker and the, the speaker uh, directs the counsel what to do in consultation with the Bipartisan Legal Advisory Group, which is the um, the the Speaker, the House Majority Leader, the Majority Whip, the Minority Leader, the Minority Whip. So the rule is explicit that I take direction from the Speaker, and that's what I did.
2: Letter's first involvement with the committee extends all the way back to its genesis. He was directly involved in crafting the resolution that created it.
0: I was consulted uh, about... The, the resolution. Uh, so there, there were discussions and, and uh, how to frame it, etc. And so, uh, yes, I was, I was definitely involved in that.
2: For Letter, the committee's investigation is personal.
0: I was in the chamber, the House chamber on January 6th. So um, this whole investigation, et cetera, was something that uh, I uh, personally <laughs> thought was quite important.
2: So what role will Letter and his team play? It all comes back to a key sticking point in the committee's creation, which we talked about in episode five of this series. What powers will the committee have to force people to turn over documents it believes to be relevant or to demand that witnesses testify? Congress does not have the same powers as law enforcement. They cannot issue warrants backed by a judge.
1: It's quite common for congressional committees to um, request to seek voluntary compliance with a witness or an individual who has documents before issuing a subpoena. The the request does not create the same legal obligation as a subpoena or subject, importantly, does not subject
2: someone to the same penalties. That's the voice of Lawfare Senior Editor and Brookings Congressional Expert, Molly Reynolds.
1: In the House of Representatives, subpoena power is granted to committees by the parent chamber of the House. This is also how it works in the Senate. In 1975, as part of a much broader set of reforms to the House, uh, all committees and subcommittees were granted subpoena power, subject to a vote of the full panel, so the full committee or full subcommittee, and then a vote of the full House in order to actually enforce the subpoena. In 1977, the House adopted a rule change that meant that individual committees could decide to delegate their subpoena power that they had gotten from the full house to their chairs.
2: In other words, Congress sets the bounds of its own authority, at least in the first instance. And that looks very different depending on which congressional body is trying to act. Here, the relevant body is a select committee established by the Speaker, against the Republican leadership's will, and very much without its cooperation. And it is already starting from a position of needing to assert that it will not be shrugged off. Because once the committee starts sending document requests and asking for interviews, defiance is not going to come just in the form of angry talking points on the evening news. They're going to come in the form of lawsuits. Here's Adam Kinzinger.
6: You know, the biggest holdups in getting organized, kind of figuring out what it is we're going to look at is just, I mean, everybody had a motion in this, right? It's like, well, let's go after Donald Trump or let's do this. But you have to realize you got to start somewhere. You, you can't just call somebody on the phone, subpoena them, have them come in and start asking them questions and be able to hold their feet to the fire if you have no proof.
4: You know, at the time, the members were insistent. We're talking in meeting every day. They they started to have preliminary discussions about the kind of information they would need to tell the full story.
2: The investigators are not the only ones in the room. The litigation team is ready to go, too. They all know that the first legal challenge can't be far off. Here's Douglas' letter.
0: I believe I was at the very first meeting of the, uh, of the committee. I can still picture the, the meeting room where we were in. So, you know, it's the, it was obviously uh, contemplated that there would be some litigation and the giving of legal advice, even though they had, you know, a chief counsel and all sorts of uh, lawyers on on the staff. They knew that uh, there was going to need to be some use for my services.
2: By now, almost a month has passed since the dramatic first hearing of the committee. Although it's been busy building its teams and developing strategies, to the outside world, the committee seems to have gone completely dark. At the end of August, the committee finally gives some hint of what it's up to.
6: We are following breaking news from Capitol Hill this afternoon. The House Select Committee, tasked with investigating the January 6th insurrection, has now issued its first sweeping requests for documents.
4: So yes, the the, the initial outreach, one of the first signs the investigation was active was this request to the archives, not a subpoena, but just a voluntary request for uh, records from the agencies and the Trump White House.
2: The National Archives is the government agency responsible for housing and maintaining all presidential records. It's not just for posterity, and it's not even optional. There are laws requiring the president to preserve official records and turn them over to the archives at the end of their administrations.
0: The committee staff was very, very <laughs> busy, you know, doing um Interviews doing analysis of, of data, you know, telephone data, for instance, who exploring connections between people, getting a whole lot of material from federal agencies. And remember, that, that led to one of the other uh, types of litigation was the records of the Trump administration, the official records of the White House by statute upheld by the Supreme Court, belonged to the people of the United States. And so those records were in the
4: National Archives.
2: The committee's request to the National Archives is pretty involved.
4: And a list listed a long list of names of anyone whose correspondence they wanted or certain subjects that might be referenced, pretty all-encompassing. So you knew it was going to be a massive undertaking for the archives uh, and also form the sort of core of the committee's initial um, base of information.
2: But remember, these are sensitive White House documents dating from the Trump administration. The committee is rightly expecting pushback from former President Trump and his allies. That much is obvious. What's less obvious to most people is that there's a chance the Biden administration may also push back, not because it wants to protect Trump, but rather because it may believe the executive branch has an institutional interest in preventing congressional committees from having unfettered access to presidential records. In any event, the committee has made its request. Not long after, the National Archives, also known as NARA, responds.
0: There was then the process that began is how these kinds of things are supposed to happen, which is um, accommodation, meaning NARA would say, "Okay, you've asked for a massive amount of material, uh, prioritize it. What would you like first?
2: The next step is for NARA to begin producing whatever it can. And there's a whole process for figuring out what can and what can't be turned over. It involves seeking guidance from the current White House.
0: Uh, sometimes NARA would say, in consultation with the White House, we're not sure whether the following things would be appropriate to turn over. Uh, it, m- it might be that they're not actually the official records, other things maybe uh, the White House would want to assert executive privilege over. And the Biden administration decided, uh, with some exceptions, that the committee would get it.
2: So the archives has the go-ahead from the Biden administration on most of the documents.
0: The staff with with the archives folks were able to narrow down the priorities and therefore to um, start getting some material right away. And so what the um, archive staff did is they prepared tranches of material. And they'd say, okay, we have tranche one ready now, and that's this. As you, you know requested, this is the stuff we um, prioritize first. And then like a week later, we got second tranche, third tranche, et cetera.
2: But there's another step in the process too.
0: Under the uh, the, the regulations and, the, and the, the governing statute, the Presidential Records Act, there would then be notice to the former president to see whether there was any objection to material being turned over.
2: This may be surprising. How is it possible that the former president might have the ability to stop the production of documents that he was required by law to turn over to the National Archives, an entity now under the control of the current president, if the current president has agreed to produce them? because the Supreme Court said so in 1977.
0: This case from a three-judge district court for the District of Columbia presents the question of the facial constitutionality of the Presidential Recordings and Materials Preservation Act of 1974.
2: After former President Richard Nixon resigned from office, the Presidential Recordings and Materials Preservation Act became law which directed the administrator of the General Services Administration to take custody of Nixon's presidential materials. From there, the administrator could grant government archivists access to the materials, preserve them for historical value, and even make certain materials available for use in judicial proceedings. Nixon challenged the constitutionality of the law, claiming that it violated his presidential privilege and the separation of powers, among other rights and principles. Here's Justice William J. Brennan, Jr., reading out the court's opinion in the case.
0: We hold that appellant constituted a legitimate class of one, thus providing a constitutional basis for Congress' decision to proceed with dispatch with respect to his materials while accepting the status of his predecessor's papers and ordering the further consideration of generalized standards to govern the papers of his successors.
2: In short, the court ruled that former presidents do have the right to assert executive privilege over confidential communications from their time in office. This is extremely relevant to Trump's interests.
4: You're talking about Donald Trump's most sensitive and closely held White House papers, not classified in all cases. Um, then by mid-October, you get to this point where Donald Trump realizes the committee is going after his sensitive White House records from the National Archives.
2: So the National Archives gives Trump the opportunity to weigh in. And to almost no one's surprise.
0: And President Trump objected uh, with the first tranche. Then, um, you know, former President Trump decided to come in and sue.
2: The battle
6: between former President Trump and the Congressional Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol heating up this morning. Mr. Trump continuing to fight against the committee's examination of his actions before and during the insurrection. His suit seeks to prevent the National Archives from turning his White House records over, saying it's an effort by Democrats to distract from President Biden's drop in the polls by focusing on the riots.
0: We, we, it would have been astonishing <laughs> if they had not uh, objected.
2: Remember. The Biden administration has already publicly approved the release of most of these records.
4: Now you have your first conflict. because Donald Trump goes to court and says, that can't happen. I, I, you can't have my political rival deciding which of my papers are privileged or not.
2: So on October 18th, Trump files a lawsuit against the committee and the National Archives, asking the court to block the production of his documents. He advances several legal arguments including the claim that the committee doesn't have a valid legislative purpose for seeking the documents, and the claim that the legislation governing presidential records is unconstitutional. Ultimately, he's arguing that his assertion of executive privilege should overrule the decision made by the current president to waive that privilege and release the records.
4: You know, Trump throughout his tenure in public life has stress put stress tests and strain and, and and brought to the fore some of these very arcane processes that never get any attention because he he used them as self-protection he uh, attempted to corrupt some of the, these processes to to mask things that, that were going on and i think here you saw him again trying to stretch the bounds of executive power, of presidential power in ways that were meant to you know, shield himself from any culpability or even scrutiny related to January 6th.
2: So the moment the committee knew would come has just arrived. It's facing the first legal challenge designed to impede their investigation.
0: The legal argument uh, the, that we made and that the Biden administration made were very, very similar. I thought our arguments were, were extremely solid.
2: Here's Letter, later laying out those arguments before the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals.
0: The current president is in the best position, best by far, to determine what is in the interests of the executive branch at that time. The current president has weighed, as, as the Supreme Court indicated, but the current president makes a determination, as this president did, bringing it you know, back to this case. The, the president, as we know, said, we have an extremely strong interest here in the select committee being able to carry out this investigation as part of its legislative uh, duties, responsibilities. And therefore, in that situation, the, the court, what the court should do is say, the current president has spoken and that's it, we're done.
2: Despite a very strong case, there are still some doubts about its outcome.
0: Now remember, the one thing, the one sort of fly in the ointment was that in um, the, the GSA versus Nixon case, where the Supreme Court had upheld the constitutionality of the, um, the first Presidential Recordings Act, there, the Supreme Court said that the president did, the former president did have standing to, uh, to, to challenge this statute and, and raise executive privilege. So we couldn't come in and say, wait a minute, executive privilege can surely only be claimed by the current president. We have only one president at a time. How could you possibly have a prior president override a current president on on disclosure of something? But there was that language in the Nixon versus GSA.
2: Nonetheless, on November 9th, the court rules against Trump. The archives will go ahead with the production.
0: Um, And ultimately, we we prevailed. There's only one president at a time.
2: That is, the archives were going to go ahead with the production. Instead, Trump appeals the decision to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which means the documents can't be turned over until that appeal is resolved. The committee wins again in the circuit court. Then, Trump appeals again, all the way up to the Supreme Court
6: major news in the investigation into the insurrection at the Capitol. The House January 6th committee can and presumably will get White House records from President Trump's time in office. The Supreme Court late today rejected Mr. Trump's request to block the committee from getting those documents, hundreds of documents. And the vote here was eight to one. Only Justice Clarence Thomas said the court should have blocked the release. Justice Brett Kavanaugh in the ruling writes, moreover, it could be argued that the strength of a privilege claim should diminish to some extent as the years pass after a former president's term in office. This means it's now up to the National Archives to deliver the files direct
1: to the committee.
2: The eventual win gives the committee a massive trove of materials, which essentially opened the floodgates for the investigation. But the final decision from the Supreme Court doesn't come down until January 19, 2022, five months after the committee initially made its request to the National Archives. And all that time, the American people are not learning much about what, if anything, the committee is discovering through its investigation. Or if the investigation is even going forward at all. The news is stalled, at coverage of obscure legal doctrines that seem very distant from the committee's self-identified mission. It feels like a black box. The perceived silence was even frustrating for members of the committee. Here's Kinzinger again.
6: I think it was a frustrating time because we just didn't have guidance for ourselves. We weren't creating the guidance in terms of, okay, well, we definitely need to do something in December, April. What we were up against and what we knew was one bad hearing, all it takes, so if we're gonna have like nine hearings or 10 hearings total, all it takes at any time is one bad one, one that goes off the rails, fails, or doesn't make its case to completely end America's interest in this. That's a heavy weight to bear.
2: Of course, much of what the committee is doing is very intentionally behind closed doors. Although the National Archives documents are a crucial source of information, they are not the only source. And plenty of people are willing to be helpful. Here's Douglas' letter.
0: I did want to make sure to, to emphasize, remember that especially as the investigation was going on and people realized how many people were actually talking to the, um, the committee and its uh, investigators, that we had, we, we turned out having a massive number of members of the Trump administration and, and, uh, and others who, in my view, did their patriotic duty and came in and talked with no, you know, there was there was no litigation needed uh, of any kind, threatened or needed of any kind. But there was an immense amount of work that was done where the staff was talking to federal agencies, you know, DHS, the Secret Service, uh, DOD, etc., to to obtain information uh, that it did, and then there was a whole lot, you know, information obtained through. Uh, you know, the U.S. Capitol Police and and uh, all sorts of the, the videos from within the Capitol, lots of uh, investigation.
2: That doesn't mean that getting people to talk is easy or quick. In many cases, it can be quite time-consuming.
0: A lot of times, by the way, subpoenas were were called friendly subpoenas, meaning the the potential witness said, I am willing to testify, but... I, I need a subpoena, sometimes need as a matter of law.
1: This isn't unusual. Negotiated compliance really is a, a norm in the case of congressional subpoenas. And as we saw throughout the January 6th investigation, different people will have different incentives to cooperate with a congressional investigation or not.
0: You know, in order to disclose material. They might have had, for instance, a um a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, which which cannot override a congressional subpoena. so we had we had plenty of situations where the subpoenas would be um, uh, were friendly. um and so we knew there wasn't going to be direct litigation
2: still, it's going to take time. And it's going to have to be handled quietly so as not to scare off those who are nervous about cooperating. it's fall twenty twenty one. The committee and its investigative staff are hard at work, sorting through an enormous amount of information, though that's far from obvious from the outside. Actually, there is more information trickling out to the public during this period. But it's even more obscure than Trump's lawsuit, and thus even harder to recognize. It relates to the committee's other investigative efforts, especially its subpoenas to witnesses, which begin in September and the legal challenges those provoke. Kyle Cheney of Politico made this his beat.
4: So in my view, right off the bat, I I told my bosses and they fully agreed that the right way to cover January 6th, not just the committee, but January 6th, was you needed to have visibility and and on both sides of the equation. What was happening in the prosecutions of January 6th defendants, what was happening in the committee. And I guess in, in, in maybe it's really three parts, what's happening in the committee investigation, but also the committee's legal battles. And that that turned out to be uh, really important because the committee used its court filings to tell a lot of the way, the way prosecutors will use speak.
5: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like
6: Evan,
1: who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
4: Alright, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited
0: for $15 a month and six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us.
1: MintMobile.com
0: slash switch.
1: Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG.
4: Indictments to tell a story. The committee used its legal battles. In fact, they it was almost a tactical choice. When someone would sue them, it was it was an opportunity for them to say, oh, now we get to talk about the evidence we have against you in a legally supportable way, whereas they didn't want to just start unearthing and and, and posting online all of their crucial evidence as they went.
2: Doug Letter confirms that the committee, too, is anticipating more legal challenges at the time.
0: We knew that, that, there, were, that there were certain subpoenas or you know requests for people to testify, et cetera, that were very likely to lead to litigation.
2: There are a number of hardline Trump loyalists who at one stage or another refuse to comply with the committee's demands. But the confrontations between them and the committee play out differently depending on who and what is at stake. The first is a group of Trump aides and advisors, former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, Former White House Deputy Chief of Staff for Communications, Dan Scavino, and former Trump advisor, Steve Bannon, who effectively ignored the committee's demands and were ultimately held in contempt. The committee wants to talk to them. The next is John Eastman, an attorney who is allegedly the brains behind the fake electors' scheme to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. The committee subpoenas him on November 8, 2021. Another group consists of legislators who seem to have played some role in the events of January sixth, including Kevin McCarthy, Jim Jordan, and Scott Perry. After months of trying to get them to voluntarily provide information, the committee subpoenas them in May 2022. Each of these groups presents their own unique legal challenges to the committee's authority. so. As we've come to understand, they will all take time to sort out. They will all involve legal principles that aren't well known to the general public. And they will all be slow enough and obscure enough to be powerless to refute the overwhelming sentiment shared by many Americans, the sense that the committee just wasn't doing anything. Let's take each group in turn. First, the Trump advisors, who received subpoenas between September 2021 and February 2022, who simply refuse to comply with the committee's demands.
4: They included uh, Mark Meadows, uh, you know, Trump's chief of staff, and Dan Scavino is the uh, social media guy. Steve Bannon was in that mix.
2: Also on this list is Peter Navarro, who was the assistant to the president and the director of trade and manufacturing policy.
0: Uh, you know, and there were various levels of defiance. So, for instance, we had people who came in and provided some material like Mark Meadows, and then at some point just stop. Uh, we had people who came in and spent the whole time just taking the Fifth Amendment, uh, you know, which is very obviously uh, interesting because at that time, you sort of wondering, you know, were there criminal actions taken by, uh, by some of these
1: people? General Flynn, do you believe in the peaceful transition of power in the United States of America?
0: Yes. Sir. On the advice of counsel, I hereby assert my Fifth Amendment right against
6: uh, being compelled to be a witness against myself.
0: Apparently, they thought there were because you, know, you know they were taking the Fifth Amendment. This is where then you know very difficult decisions had to be made about what um, what the committee wanted to do with various cases.
2: In one way or another. Each of these individuals is refusing to comply with the committee's demands. Some are doing so with legal justifications. They're asserting legitimate constitutional rights that the committee has to respect. Others are simply refusing to comply without any stated legal basis. In the case of those simple defiers, the committee needs the information the witnesses have. So it needs to decide whether, and if so, how, to try to enforce its subpoenas. Let's review the options.
1: You can question the validity of a subpoena as part of an effort to enforce a case, excuse me, enforce compliance with a subpoena through civil litigation. You can question the validity of the subpoena when it, as part of a criminal contempt of Congress prosecution. And you can also assess the validity of a, a subpoena for documents.
2: In other words, The committee has two options. The first is to sue.
0: Did we want to try to pursue civil litigation? And part of the problem there, we all knew, was the experience that uh, that I and the House had had over the prior years of would the courts rule fast enough if we if we brought a civil case to enforce a subpoena? Would the courts rule fast enough? Um, And you know, ultimately, I won some cases, but but the courts just took way way too long um and so we were you know very aware of of these kinds of issues so the again the the chairman Thompson and the uh, the committee were the the decision makers on what we would actually do in the various cases about uh, as far as litigation um, and and would we sue and and if so what what arguments we would make Etc
2: The committee's second option is to pursue criminal contempt charges, meaning it can refer the individuals to the Justice Department with a recommendation that they be criminally prosecuted for contempt of Congress. In the cases of Steve Bannon, Mark Meadows, Peter Navarro, and Dan Scavino, that's the route the committee decides on.
0: We knew in in putting that together... We would present it to the Justice Department and the Justice Department with a need to talk to us, as they did, to understand, you know, uh, all the background, to get all the material, et cetera.
2: Ultimately, though, the committee's referrals are not self-enforcing. It's up to the Justice Department's discretion whether to actually indict these individuals.
0: It was made very clear that the decision on whether or not to prosecute would be made by them alone, not not by us. We the House merely made a recommendation, but um, I w- assisted in in getting them all the relevant documents and uh, and and the relevant people to talk to them about what happened.
2: Steve Bannon is the first person the committee votes to hold in contempt. He receives the subpoena on September twenty fourth, twenty twenty one, and simply refuses to comply with it. His lawyer flatly states that he will not turn over any documents and will not appear for testimony. So the committee refers him to the Justice Department on October 21, 2021, for criminal contempt of Congress.
0: You know, I met with FBI agents and, and the, uh, the DOJ folks to say, okay, you know, when, uh, what happened in this conversation when you, know, you talked to Bannon or Bannon's you know, lawyer or whatever? We provided them with all the, the facts, and uh And then we knew there was if there was going to be a prosecution, there would be um, various issues would be raised.
2: The justice department does its own review a few weeks later. it reaches a decision, and Bannon is indicted on November twelfth twenty twenty one It marks another turning point for the committee.
4: the most important thing for their entire investigation was. The day that the Justice Department charged Steve Bannon, which actually fits right in this time period we've been talking about, uh, was in November of 2021. Uh, a couple of weeks after Trump files his lawsuit, a couple of weeks after Mark Meadows files his lawsuit, Justice Department agrees with Congress that Steve Bannon should be charged with criminal contempt. More than anything else, scared other reluctant witnesses into saying, "We better, we better talk to them, or else we're going to get ourselves." Criminally charged, or be it in jeopardy at least. Um, if someone at his level can get charged with it, then, then any of us can.
2: But even if the indictment is useful precedent for encouraging other reluctant witnesses to step forward, the committee still has to deal with Bannon. It still wants evidence from him. And indictment or no indictment, he's not cooperating. And now it has to wait for the legal proceedings to play out in court. As expected, Bannon's legal team does indeed raise a number of arguments in his defense. Some of the arguments that Bannon and his legal
1: team made in that case include the argument that his prosecution violated due process because his actions in not complying had been authorized by previous opinions from the Office of Legal Counsel, which is part of the same entity, the Department of Justice, that was prosecuting him. Here's
2: Bannon.
6: We sent a letter to the committee uh, before five o'clock yesterday just saying, hey, based upon the letter we've received from President Trump, this looks like an issue that the committee is going to have to settle with President Trump about executive privilege.
1: Bannon's legal team also argued that he was, you know, just following Trump's directions and honoring executive privilege so he couldn't be willfully failing to comply with the subpoena.
2: Next up is Peter Navarro whom the committee had subpoenaed to learn more about his involvement in efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. According to the committee's subpoena, Navarro worked with Bannon and others to develop and implement a plan, which he deemed the Green Bay Sweep, to delay Congress's certification of the election. Navarro spoke about this strategy and purported election fraud multiple times publicly. Here's Navarro speaking on Steve Bannon's podcast about the strategy.
0: You are the hero on January 6th, Steve. As I say in Chapter 21 of In Trump Time, you were the guy who had the Green Bay Packers sweep strategy to go up to Capitol Hill, Pence is the quarterback. But we had 100
2: people working on the Green Bay team as linemen, halfbacks, and fullbacks. There's also Dan Scavino, He had reportedly spent a considerable amount of time with Trump on January 6th and also promoted the Stop the Steal rally on the Ellipse. The committee wants to hear from him because he's the guy who controlled Trump's Twitter feed and social media. Here's Kinzinger.
6: One of the ones that I really wish we'd have gotten more information and really wish we'd have been able to have a truthful conversation with was Dan Scavino, because If you look at how much of Donald Trump existed on the internet, you look at, you know, part of the reason I knew there'd be violence on January 6th is because I looked at Twitter, right? I mean, I just literally looked at Twitter. I saw the threats coming against me and the threats against other members of the House.
1: The committee has many questions for Mr. Scavino about his political social media work for President Trump, including his interactions with an online forum called The Donald and with QAnon, a bizarre and dangerous cult. President Trump, working with Mr. Scavino, successfully spread distrust for our courts, which had repeatedly found no basis to overturn the election.
2: Both Navarro and Scavino also resist their subpoenas, though in different ways. Navarro refuses to comply with his subpoena altogether, claiming that his testimony and relevant documents are protected by executive privilege.
0: Uh, I have a loyalty to the Constitution and a loyalty to the president. The president has invoked executive privilege in this matter. It's not um, my authority uh, to uh, revoke that privilege. I, I, can't, I can't, can't do that.
2: Scavino, on the other hand, has his lawyers negotiate with the committee to request an extension on the deadlines for document production and the deposition, it seems like he might be willing to cooperate. The committee grants Scavino an extension, and then another one. Ultimately, the committee gives Scavino six separate extensions, eventually moving the deadline almost 17 weeks later. Despite the extensions, Scavino fails to hand over a single document to the committee, nor does he appear for testimony.
3: Mr. Scavino's case he strung us along for months before making it clear that he believes he's above the law.
2: On March 28, 2022, the committee votes to hold both Navarro and Scavino in contempt.
3: They potentially played a part in an attack on American democracy, but they can ignore our investigation because they worked for the government at the time. That's their argument. They're not fooling anybody. They are obligated to comply with our investigation. They have refused to do so, and that's a crime.
2: The last character in this group is also the most prominent one, Trump's former Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows.
3: As White House Chief of Staff, Mr. Meadows played a role in or was witness to key events leading up to and including the January 6th assault on the United States Capitol.
2: Meadows' engagement with the committee is unique. At first, he refuses to cooperate. Then, he changes his mind and hands over a significant number of highly sensitive documents. That these documents that former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows has handed over to the committee, and let's just repeat, he handed them over voluntarily. There was no claim of privilege, more than 6,000 pages of documents. So what Liz Cheney has also said is those texts, those emails which were on his personal phone are, quote, extremely interesting.
0: Among them, a text message with a member of Congress in which Meadows responds, quote,
6: I love it, to a plan for appointing an alternate slate of electors, a text exchange with January 6 rally organizers, text messages about the need for Trump to issue a public statement to stop the January 6 attack, and an email that included a 38-page PowerPoint briefing titled Election Fraud, Foreign Interference, and Options for Six
2: Jan. And Kinzinger describes these documents as singularly important. Even though Meadows ultimately cuts off cooperation, the initial production is something of a breakthrough.
6: Our big break, frankly, came uh, when we, we got the initial uh, tranche of Mark Meadows' text messages. When we were able to see that, and I say we we looked through it, but the investigators mostly, when we got that and started to see who was communicating with different people and, and some of these threads that were happening. From there, and that was kind of, I think, our big leap from, is this thing gonna work? Are we gonna be able to get the information? To yes, okay, we're on a path here. Uh, that That was the catalyst to get us there.
2: But he doesn't produce all of the documents the committee asks for. He claims that some of them are protected by executive privilege. And he soon changes course entirely. Even after his lawyers had negotiated a deposition date, he doesn't show up. He refuses to produce anything else. So in December 2021, the committee is poised to vote to hold Meadows in contempt. But this time, Meadows retaliates.
5: Mark
6: Meadows, Trump's fourth and final chief of staff, and remember, a former member of Congress himself, is now suing the committee and Speaker Nancy Pelosi for good measure. Meadows is asking a federal court to block enforcement of the subpoena to testify, as well as the subpoena issued to Verizon.
2: Here's Meadows on why he can no longer cooperate.
6: The the January 6th Commission is uh, continuing on. Uh, We've been trying to work with them uh, in a spirit of accommodation to actually share uh, what we know from a non privileged standpoint while uh, making sure that executive privilege is protected. Uh, The president has claimed executive privilege. I'm going to honor that. I'm not going to be the first uh, chief of staff to to actually waive that. It's not mine to waive, and uh, and it's really not Congress's to waive.
2: Meadows offers a few arguments to justify why he shouldn't have to comply with the committee's subpoena. One, because the material it's seeking is covered by executive privilege and thus can't be disclosed. Two, because the committee doesn't have the power to ask him for anything in the first place, including because of what's known as testimonial immunity, which immunizes current and former White House senior officials from being compelled to testify before Congress.
1: In the case of Meadows, the House did decide to litigate his attempts to quash his subpoena as opposed to seeking dismissal of Meadows' suit against the committee on speech or debate grounds. So remember, courts have consistently said that they can't quash a subpoena from a congressional committee because that's an interference with Congress's speech or debate powers. In this case, though, rather than argue that Meadows' case should be dismissed on speech or debate grounds, the House did decide to to litigate the, the case. The Department of Justice was invited to file a brief on on Meadows' testimonial immunity question.
2: Here's former FBI general counsel Andrew Weissman on the Justice Department's brief.
4: The Department of Justice made a filing saying a number of things that were very adverse to Mark Meadows. First, they said it is, he is not protected by absolute immunity. At most, he's uh, protected by qualified immunity, but in any event, Um, Here, the Congressional uh, Committee had established the need, um, since it's only a qualified immunity, that means there's a balancing. But the other is that they made it clear that this doesn't apply to documents, it only applies to testimony. And they also made it clear that the testimony has to relate to um, things that that Mark Meadows was doing in, in his official capacity not in a frolic and detour, and not in a criminal capacity.
1: They argued that he was not, he
2: was not immune from, from compelled testimony. Undeterred, the committee votes to refer Meadows to the Justice Department for criminal contempt of Congress, only six days after Meadows files his lawsuit.
3: Mr. Chairman, on this vote, there are nine ayes and zero nos. The motion is agreed to.
2: So the Justice Department, having already indicted Bannon, is now faced with three additional contempt referrals from the committee, Navarro, Scavino, and Meadows. As before, the Justice Department considers the committee's evidence in support of its recommendations for prosecutions. This time, a few months pass before it announces its decision on June 3rd. It will prosecute Navarro, but it will not Prosecute Scavino or Meadows. We're
1: going to go now to California Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff. And it is
2: very puzzling uh, why these two witnesses would be treated uh, differently than the two that the Justice Department is prosecuting. Uh, there is no absolute immunity. Uh, these witnesses have very relevant testimony to offer in terms of what went into the violence of January 6th, uh, the, the propagation of the big lie, uh, and the idea that witnesses could simply fail to show up Uh, and when the statute requires the Justice Department to present those cases to the grand jury, they don't, is deeply troubling. Uh, We hope to get more insight from the Justice Department, uh, but uh, it's, a, I think, a grave disappointment uh, and could impede our work if other witnesses think uh, they can likewise uh, refuse to show up with impunity. So if all four of these men defied the committee's subpoenas, why is the Justice Department only pursuing two of them?
0: We knew that the Justice Department was going to be making some, for them, difficult judgments because, you know, part of Justice Department policy is they, they don't prosecute, uh, I think the, the, the line is, you know, unless they, they think realistically they can get a, um, a conviction. So, you know, they're making judgments about are we likely to be able to convince a jury in a particular case? So I knew that that was what the kind of thinking they would engage in, and um, I really didn't have any prediction about which way they would go in specific cases. We knew the cases were not all alike.
2: But the committee doesn't know, and won't ever know, specifically why the Justice Department decided the way that it did.
0: You know, the Justice Department made those determinations. I was not privy to uh, what their thinking was. We did not get the prosecution memos.
2: Here's Kenzinger again. One of
6: the things I didn't fully realize until we started this is, so you can subpoena somebody, they ignore the subpoena, we could go to the DOJ. But there's all these iterations in between. You know, you have to give somebody a fair chance to schedule something correctly, you have to try to serve them. There's all these different things, delaying tactics. And then eventually. You know, you can take it to court. You can appeal. You can appeal the ap- appeal. You can eventually take it to the Supreme Court. And you start to realize you lay out the timeline. and It's like we may never get to answers. It was part of the thing we had with, you know, whether it was a Trump or Pence. And I, I won't go too much into some of those discussions. But you know, is is how long will it take to go through this? And we certainly had an end date at which, you know, there's going to be a point you can't go further because this committee ends. And so, yeah, those early battles. I mean. As you lay out the, you know, there were some people that obviously would come in and know things and they'd volunteer information that was good. Uh, But then when we started to get into the battle with the resistors, I'll call them. um, Yeah, it was a little worrisome. And I I still think to this day, uh, maybe DOJ can get to it, but there's information that's out there that we don't know simply because people wouldn't come in and talk. And, you know, it's sad, but uh, obstruction of justice wouldn't be a thing if it didn't work at least sometimes.
2: Nonetheless, House General Counsel Doug Letter argues that the Justice Department established an important precedent.
0: First, I thought the Justice Department did something that was absolutely critical, that I hope will um, stand up in the future, that that all future presidents will go back to what all virtually our prior presidents did before Trump, which is there's an accommodation process and you you don't you cannot just ignore a congressional subpoena, um, whether you're in the executive branch or not. And, and private persons have absolutely no possible justification for ignoring a congressional subpoena. You know, executive branch people at least there's a possibility of some executive privilege claims, but you cannot just ignore them. And I thought that that was uh, extremely important that the Justice Department demonstrated that.
2: Lawfare's congressional expert Molly Reynolds has a different take. The the ultimate use of criminal prosecution to
1: try and get, try and punish people for their non-compliance and ideally it would have been the threat of criminal prosecution that would have forced them or persuaded them, I should say, into complying and you know we didn't really see that happen.
2: In other words, is Congress's contempt power really sufficient for enforcing a key investigative authority like a subpoena? When all four of these individuals successfully avoid telling the committee what they know? When only two of them are indicted? And the other two receive no penalty whatsoever for brazenly disregarding a lawful order from Congress? The next story of resisting the committee's investigation centers around John Eastman.
1: New developments in the investigation into the January 6th attack of the Capitol. The House Select Committee investigating the insurrection will subpoena conservative lawyer John Eastman. Committee Chair Congressman Benny Thompson confirmed the subpoena in an interview yesterday telling Washington, the Washington Post, quote, it will happen. Eastman is the legal figure behind a memo that detailed how President Trump could potentially deny Joe Biden the presidency. He was a key player working out the now infamous Willard Hotel Command Center.
2: The committee subpoenas Eastman on November 8th, 2021 he declines to produce the requested documents, including on the grounds that they are protected by executive privilege. He does show up for deposition on December 9th, at which point he effectively refuses to answer any substantive questions and just repeatedly asserts his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination.
1: I think in the case of John Eastman, this is another example of where Congress's subpoena power is really, it's not just about what can you attempt to obtain from an individual themselves.
2: This time, the committee does not pursue criminal contempt to enforce the subpoena. Instead, they go a different and very creative route. Rather than attempting to force Eastman to comply with the subpoena, the committee finds a loophole that will allow it to access the materials he himself won't give them.
1: The subpoena went to his employer for his emails. Like that is still it's a kind of an avenue to get around in certain circumstances around a recalcitrant specific witness. We know that there were separate subpoenas to his employer for his emails and to his phone provider for call logs.
2: During the time he was serving as a Trump advisor, Eastman was also a professor at Chapman University.
0: We knew that there was all of this material that was in the, uh, the Chapman University server, and the university was very unhappy with work that he was doing uh, in that role. And so uh, it turned out that they were willing to cooperate and because the material was on their, um, their system. And so there, we, we didn't think we had to litigate against Chapman, but we thought it was very likely that Eastman would try to stop the disclosure.
2: So Eastman is refusing to produce his documents, but Chapman University is willing and able to do it in his stead.
5: We have breaking news tonight involving the Capitol insurrection. We have learned the January 6th committee is now shifting its focus to computer servers at Southern California's Chapman University. The committee says former Chapman Law School Dean John Eastman used his Chapman University email account while helping President Trump try to overturn the 2020 election. The committee says there are more than 19,000 Eastman emails they want to look at.
2: So, on January 20th, 2022, Eastman sues the university and the committee in an attempt to close the loophole. This chapter of the story involves a different legal issue, the attorney-client privilege. Eastman argues that the university cannot release his emails because they consist of communications between him and Trump that are covered by that privilege.
0: You know, the argument in court was being made that um, this was classic attorney-client material.
2: There's a fairly low threshold to making this argument. Eastman basically just has to establish that he was acting as a lawyer and that Trump was his client, and that the materials the committee is seeking are communications between them. But invoking that doctrine opens the door for the committee to fight back on new legal grounds. It's true, that the attorney-client privilege is a powerful shield against disclosing almost all communications between lawyer and client. But there's an exception that destroys the privilege. It's known as the crime-fraud exception. And it means that if a client is communicating with his or her attorney in furtherance of committing a crime or a fraud, there is no more privilege. As Doug Letter explains, the committee seized on this right away.
0: The committee quickly recognized, because of the nature of some of the things that, that we uh, knew that, that Eastman was claiming privilege over, and what we, the information we knew already about what Eastman uh, had been doing and saying with, with you know Trump and his top advisors. Remember, we had a whole lot more than one source of information. We knew that this was likely to be problematic for them and that there was a very good argument for crime fraud. I remember, I'm fairly sure I used the exact words at some point with meeting with the committee, that I was very bullish on making sure that we included that argument, not just sort of standard arguments about uh, attorney-client waiver or things like that.
2: This new line of argument would give the committee the opportunity to spell out for the court and anyone else who read its brief, what its investigation had already uncovered about John Eastman. Because in order to defeat Eastman's assertion of attorney-client privilege, the committee must present evidence of a crime or fraud.
0: One of the things that was attorney-client privilege was being claimed over was something where is you know, Professor Eastman said uh, his advice was that um, the Trump folks should just do a minor violation of the law.
2: The litigation is before Judge David Carter of the Central District of California.
0: And I said to Judge Carter that I've been practicing law for about 42 years. I was very familiar with the attorney-client privilege. I could assure him that I had never once advised a client to. you know, if we just engage in a minor violation of the law, that, that's OK. And uh, if I had been caught at doing it, I certainly never would have said this is covered by attorney-client privilege. And uh, that seemed to resonate with, uh, with Judge Carter.
2: On March 28th, Judge Carter issues his decision. We have
1: breaking news. A federal judge in Santa Ana has ruled former President Donald Trump more likely than not, attempted to illegally block Congress from certifying the results of the 2020 election. The judge ruled Trump likely conspired with former Chapman University law professor John Eastman to block the certification by pressuring Vice President Mike Pence to derail the certification. The judge made the determinations in a ruling ordering Eastman to turn over about 100 emails requested by a House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol.
2: A handful of documents remain protected by privilege. 101 others, however, must be given to the committee.
0: This was a, a major victory that, that turned out so well, and, and obviously immense amount of credit goes to uh, you know Judge Carter. Uh, you know, attempted appeal to the Ninth Circuit by you know, Eastman and company. It didn't get anywhere.
2: So the committee succeeds in actually obtaining the materials they were after. As with the previous efforts we've discussed, though, it takes a long time, from the subpoena's issuance in November 2021 to the court's ruling at the end of March 2022. But this case is different because the committee can use the legal fight for more than just its desired outcome. It can use the legal fight to tell a story about what the investigation has been uncovering, what the committee already knows about John Eastman.
1: So much of what we kind of learned about his involvement came from this subpoena to his employer for his emails. And that, again, produced a fair amount of litigation that seems to have had consequences for the investigation beyond just the specific case. And then also, you know, it's those emails that
2: revealed various
1: pieces of information and details that we didn't otherwise have.
2: It's exactly what Kyle Cheney had anticipated when he pitched his editors on the need to cover civil litigation arising out of the committee's work. The committee's arguments in the Eastman case revealed a tremendous amount of what it knew and could legally support based on its investigation. Reading its briefs was like reading a status report on all that investigative work that had been going on behind closed doors.
4: The committee, uh, this long running litigation against John Eastman, where periodically a judge was forcing him to disclose things about his relationship with Donald Trump about their, you know, when when did he become his lawyer and and the stuff that came out there just in what we saw in the public facing court documents was extraordinary um, about Trump's personal involvement in trying to, you know, strategize ways to to get Pence to overturn the election and what they were doing with state legislatures and. so I think those two things were extremely important. I think actually
2: you know... So the Eastman legal battle has almost the opposite effect of Bannon, Scavino, Navarro, and Meadows. Theirs had forced the committee to engage with esoteric-sounding legal doctrines like executive privilege while being as secretive as possible about what it knows. The battle over Eastman's documents, on the other hand, gives the committee a forum to strategically preview the story it is constructing through its investigation. The last story of resisting the committee comes from members of Congress. From very early on, the committee had intimated that it was interested in finding out what role some of these members had played in the events of January 6th.
6: But uh, we're we're, going to pursue doggedly everything to the ends of the earth, and that includes... Uh, And we don't like necessarily
4: having to go here, but that includes members of Congress that had any involvement. The committee started talking about obtaining phone records uh, from a wide range of people, uh, including potentially members of Congress, uh, to start building out a a map or a web of contact between some of the key figures they viewed as central to uh, what happened on January 6th, what happened in the run-up to January 6th, and so there was a lot of controversy over you know, the committee potentially seeking the phone records of Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, who they knew had talked to Trump during the riot on January 6th, or Jim Jordan, who they knew met with and spoke to Donald Trump.
2: Here's Jim Jordan.
4: Did you speak with President Trump on January 6th? Yeah, I mean, I speak. I, I spoke with the president last week. I speak with the president all the time. I spoke with him on January 6th. I mean, I talk with President Trump all the time, and that's that's. I don't think that's unusual
2: but the notion that the select committee could force fellow members of congress to do anything raises a whole new host of legal questions.
4: you know so they they knew how central the actions of these members were going to be but also how difficult it is to get members get to get information about fellow members of congress uh, given all of their constitutional protections and the precedent of going after your own colleagues which is a whole sub chapter of the select committee's existence, how you do that, how you navigate that, that tricky uh, precedent they're setting there.
2: Members of Congress are protected by the speech or debate clause. As Letter explains.
0: So the executive branch and the judicial branch cannot do anything against a member of Congress who is uh, engaged in their, their legislative activities and carrying out those activities, so the executive branch could issue a subpoena to a member of Congress about a um, a speech that he or she gave on the floor, um, and that cannot be enforced in court.
2: But what about a subpoena from a congressional committee?
0: The speech or debate clause does not cover by its terms investigations within Congress, so it says may not be questioned in any other place, meaning outside Congress. So that's why, for instance, the Ethics Committee can investigate alleged wrongful conduct by members of Congress and can take action. And Congress itself can take action. Congress can throw out a member you know, under the special provisions in the Constitution. But uh, the executive branch and the judicial branch can't.
2: The committee does end up issuing subpoenas to members of Congress, including Kevin McCarthy, Jim Jordan, and Scott Perry, though not until May 2022. But they ultimately decide against enforcing them.
4: Uh, But I also think that the committee knew it had other avenues to obtain that information before they had to directly go at those members. So while they did make a lot of noise about we may need your phone records, we may need all this information directly from you, they started by trying to get it from other sources first. The
6: committee issued subpoenas to Twitter, Reddit, and the parent companies of Facebook and Google. The House panel wants those companies to provide more details on how their platforms spread misinformation in the days and weeks leading up to January 6th.
0: And so lots of times, we, they were when um, subpoenas or requests w- went out, uh, they were fully needed and justified at that time. But in the meantime, we then obtained the material elsewhere. we obtained whatever we needed.
4: So there was this whole list of names that the committee essentially sent to the phone companies and said, hey, preserve records for all these people because we might want to obtain them. Uh, They hadn't subpoenaed for them all right away, but it was a signal that these are probably the the realm of people we're going to want to Find out information about it, gave you a sense of, at least at the starting point, who they thought was going to be important in their investigation. Uh, they did similar things with social media companies. They wanted to understand the social media companies' uh, involvement or role in, in dealing with the sort of election misinformation and how they handled the, the warnings of violence or the actual threats of violence that happened on their platforms.
2: Again, Cheney provides some insight into these filings.
4: The committee was sending a signal about. Uh, who it viewed at the outset as their most important targets, most important potential witnesses. Uh, and that was a kind of a way to nod publicly to uh, the focus of their investigation, keep people uh, in the loop about what they were doing when they had been so quiet and they were still doing so many things behind the scenes.
2: Kinzinger explains.
6: Okay, it is fairly unprecedented for a... Uh, a committee in Congress to subpoena other U.S. congressmen so what are the issues there and then we also knew I think pretty much in our hearts that they probably weren't, gonna, weren't going to uh, do it they weren't going to come in so then you start thinking about okay does it actually do damage to the committee if they don't come in and we don't do anything well the media and I've and seen it a hundred times remember for about six months everybody the only question they'd ask me is are you going to refer this to DOJ which was a completely pointless question um, but that becomes an obsession. And so if you subpoena members of Congress, the obsession is, are you gonna, you know, recommend them for prosecution to the DOJ? And nobody wants to hear how their speech and debate, and frankly, you know, members of Congress and with the special constitutional rules. So a lot of that was coming into play until we just came to the conclusion that we've gotta do it. You know, we just we need to if they don't wanna come in and talk to us, that's on them. But We also can't leave this where they said, ah, they never even wanted to talk to me. It's kind of some of the decision that went into, uh, you know, other subpoenas we had.
2: Remember that during this dark period, there's also a lot happening with no indication to the public whatsoever. Although the people who defied the committee's subpoenas get all the attention, The committee's investigation quietly proceeds with the help of a vast majority of people who don't try to resist its authority. It takes hundreds of depositions of individuals somehow connected to former President Trump. It collects and reviews millions of documents from individuals and social media companies and internet service providers. If some of the witnesses the committee wants won't talk, others close to them will.
1: January 6th select committee is attempting to preserve phone records of several Republican lawmakers who played a role in the Stop the Steal rally.
2: So it's actually during this dark period that the committee collects a huge portion of the evidence that drives its investigation and that will later fill its next 10 public appearances with damning evidence against Trump. But gathering the evidence, as complicated as that turns out to be, is only the beginning. The committee must then figure out how to compile that evidence into a coherent, compelling narrative that will sustain the attention of the American people during a series of primetime televised public hearings that will happen over the summer of 2022
5: going to be what they've been preparing for since day one of this over year-long investigation. Was
2: it a conspiracy? I think, certainly, I mean, look, if you, you look at the court filings, um, you do look Do you believe at, it was a conspiracy? I do. So is this really a legitimate committee, or is this a political committee going after their opponents?
3: I am inclined to pardon many of them. They were there with love in their heart.
6: That was an unbelievable, and it was a beautiful day.
2: The committee is not the only government body hard at work responding to January 6th. The Justice Department continues its investigations and prosecutions of hundreds of rioters. It eventually indicts members of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, including on some of the most serious charges available, like seditious conspiracy. Simultaneously, the department is facing criticism for not moving quickly enough to indict Trump and his inner circle. Meanwhile, a criminal investigation is heating up in Fulton County, where a local district attorney is looking into Trump's phone call to Georgia's secretary of state, asking to find 11,780 votes.
6: I just want to find
5: 11,780 votes because we won the state.
2: And the January 6th deniers are doing their best to seize control of the story and of Congress.
1: And I want to tell you something, if Steve Bannon and I had organized that, we
2: would have won. In fact, it was Trump supporters who
6: lost their lives that day, uh, not Trump supporters who were taking the lives of others. I've repeatedly asked for the Capitol footage from before and during January 6th. Such footage would provide answers, could contain exculpatory evidence regarding the outrageous accusations against members of Congress, and most importantly, exonerate the many Americans who peacefully protested and never set foot in the Capitol.
2: All that, next season on The Aftermath. The Aftermath is a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. I'm your host, Natalie Orpet. Scripting by me, Catherine Pompilio and Benjamin Wittis. Series executive producers are me, Benjamin Wittes, and Ian Enright. Associate producer is Catherine Pompilio. Additional voicing by Rohini Kurup. Production assistance from Kara Schillen. Goat Rodeo senior producer is Megan Nadolski. Editing, artwork, and scoring by Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. To learn more about Lawfare, visit lawfareblog.com, where you can find the Lawfare team's January 6th project, Confronting the Insurrection.